Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5, with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Well, first, I just want to say, Stacey, we're super excited to have you on. Um, and ADHD, I feel like, is showing up more and more in both of our practices, I think. Uh, in mine, a lot with the intersection of eating disorders, a lot. I'm seeing it so much more in practice and finding clients of mine are being diagnosed with ADHD or being neurodivergent in adulthood, which they never had identified with before. And like seeing like all these things kind of come together for them. Like, wait, is it like in some ways there's, uh, is it me, you, or like my eating disorder? Like which one is it like my ADHD or my eating disorder? And like, which one is like feeding which thing and how does this all intersect together? Um, So we're really excited to have someone on who specializes in this and has this as their their like main thing that they work on because I feel like so many people listening to today's episode are gonna leave thinking, oh gosh, like which one is it? (laughs) Like, or or is this me? I think would be really cool to kind of see how that comes together for people. So we'd love for you to kind of start off today with one, introducing yourself and two, sharing kind of the intersection of eating disorders and ADHD and in, in like a visual way, like what do you see as like that most commonly shows up in the middle of that Venn diagram with the intersection of those two things? And what do you see most often in practice? Hmm. Ooh, that's a big question. I know we're starting off real, real <laughs> light and easing into it. <laughs> um, well, okay. So I'm, I'm Stacy and I'm an ADHD or myself. Um, and I, I'm multiply neurodivergent, um, meaning that, um, you know, I, I define, well, I not even just me, but the, the person who initially coined the term neurodivergent intends for it to be used from a really broad lens. Anyone whose brain diverges from what is considered quote unquote typical. So, um, so that's anxiety, depression, um, uh, facial tics, dyslexia, all that stuff. Like it doesn't even have to be a, a, a diagnosis necessarily to be neurodivergent. So that's the lens that I come from. And I'm a therapist in practice in Southern California. Um, and this became my specialty because I was working in higher levels of, levels of care with eating disorders. And I was like, why is this? I'm noticing this pattern where it specifically seems to be people whose brains work like mine, who aren't benefiting from treatment in the way that other people are. And they keep coming back and they're feeling and expressing the most frustration with the system as it is and the current, the treatments that we're offering and um, like, what's not working here? So that's how I kind of got into this work and um, started just like doing a lot of brainstorming because um, 
I, I think in the reason you're seeing so much ADHD popping up more and more is because there's more information about it available than there ever has been. And people are identifying with it um, in that, that way that you mentioned, that's like, wait, oh, wait, me, this could be everything. This could change everything. Like, like they found some lost scroll hidden away somewhere. Um, and it's, it's, there's so many emotions associated with that, like grief and relief and joy and despair. And now what, like it, and I think that's what, that's what the, the therapeutic intersection is, is like holding all of those and also uh, exploring like, so how does this impact my eating disorder recovery? Like, what do I, what do I do with this information? Um, does, is recovery gonna look the same as it would? as it was supposed to, as I thought it was going to look before I knew I had ADHD. Um, so then like, what is, what does all this mean? That question of what's the Venn diagram look like? Um, it's enormous and I'm always adding more things to it, but the basics right now that I kind of start with, um, when talking to people about it is, um, kind of the, those key stereotypical ADHD traits, the executive dysfunction um, that make a lot of tasks inaccessible, um, that kind of like task paralysis of, I just, I literally can't. It's not just that I don't want to, or that this sounds bad, but like the dopamine's not there. And therefore I'm not, I'm not capable. And therefore I feel bad about myself or I'm like self, uh, I've got that negative self-talk, but I'm lazy. And then I create a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that shows up in like, from everything from uh, like unre tasks unrelated to the eating disorder specifically, like I can't put the laundry away, but therefore I must be a failure and, you know, it spirals and snowballs and um, to like kitchen, acquiring food, buying food, everything that goes into like the the tasks, the, the work, the like concrete stuff associated with recovery. There's uh, sensory sensitivities, which just kind of commonly co-occur with ADHD. They are not inherent in ADHD themselves, but that includes low interoceptive awareness, not having the same cues as a neurotypical person would, and then having your ability to eat intuitively impacted by that. And so potentially permanently, you're going to be eating differently. And so having to redefine what that looks like for recovery. And then we've got just like the shaming messages that, that especially undiagnosed ADHDers that grow up with, like, you just need to try harder. And how could you forget this? Or you only remember things that are important to you. What's wrong with you grow up with? Um, and that results in trauma. <laughs> There's this really, we're hard pressed to find a non-traumatized ADHDer and course, how do we cope with that trauma? <laughs> Eating disorders work. And there's a lot of perfectionism inherent in ADHD because we're trying to compensate. And that also shows up in eating, um, as well as grind culture that kind of goes alongside perfectionism. Um, and that directly mirrors diet culture. Um, that idea that your worth is your productivity, just like your worth is, is your body size. And they, they all kind of go hand in hand and you have to let go of all of them together, not just one at a time. 
Yeah. Um, there's so many layers and pieces that we could, like you said, offshoot into that could be their own podcast episodes in quite <laughs> you know, in, in every way. We've already made a mental note that we wanted to have you back on to talk about grind culture specifically. <laughs> so we definitely we look forward to our email <laughs> after this about that. But one of the things that you mentioned that I think is really interesting that I'd love for you to help us explore a little bit more is around the concept of dopamine fixes and around how in recovery, um, they might not be there. And then, so how do you then want to acknowledge that that might be part of the, the thing that could be keeping you from engaging in recovery completely, right? Like, I think that could be one phase. And then, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but um, two could also be as well, like how do you then initiate dopamine fixes into your recovery to make it more accessible so that you can feel like you're getting that, um, that, ener- that, that, I don't know what you wanna call it, but like that movement in that direction and being able to initiate that a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of, I always say that ADHD isn't a monolith, but like I wish it was because um, it would be so much easier for like people so often, you know, they'll identify with the symptoms and they'll be like, that's me, right? But but then there's always the people who are like, well, I do that too and I don't have ADHD. And so it's I, I, it's frustrating and it's, um, it's just, it looks different in everybody. And so like, the reason I say that is because stimulation needs look different in everyone too. And the, and what our brains do with dopamine and how they get it is really varied. Um, but the, I think one of the key traits of ADHD that is most common is that, um, we, we, it's, it's not as simple as like, we have a deficit of it. It's that it comes and goes really quickly. Um, and, So we have to, rather than just like, how do we get as much of it as possible? We have to like get to know what our stimulation needs are. And so I conceptualize it as like a window of stimulation, similar to like the window of tolerance with like hyper and hypo arousal and like how, um, how much can you tolerate? Similarly, we have this like ideal window and we get over and under stimulated depending on, um, what, what dopamine is available to us in the moment. And so, um, but some of the things that might overstimulate somebody might feel perfect to somebody else. And so we're kind of always trying to fight to stay in this window. And, um, for a lot of people, um, food is a source of stimulation. Um, and I think of it, uh, whenever I hear, um, dietitians in the field talk about legalizing emotional eating. I think I conceptualize it really similar to that, but it's not exactly the same. Like I think it falls under the category of like, we need to be, we we can't pathologize people eating as a source of stimulation, similar to how emotional eating happens and it's, it's okay. And when we make it not okay, um, that's, that's when eating disorder symptoms pop in. Um, legalizing eating for stimulation, um, is, um, kind of like the way to do this work in a, in an intersectional way that isn't fat phobic. And it also scares people. And so my work is like digging into that fear and, um, 
at the same time, some people get overstimulated when they eat and both can stem from ADHD. So um, it's, it's similar to that same, the window of tolerance model. How do we, how do we accommodate those, those, like how do we expand that window? So if you are, if you're getting overstimulated eating like crunchy foods, for instance, then can we like incorporate foods that are not, that are your preferred texture that have the same benefits or whatever like that. Um, but I think another important thing to mention about dopamine is that ADHDers tend to get it just like thinking about doing something. Um, and so once we've gotten our fix, we're kind of like, oh, I don't actually have to do it. Like, I don't, I've lost my desire. Like it's, the idea was enough. Um, and of course not always, but often. And then I know that's the case for me. It's like, I really want to, I want to want to, which is something we hear really commonly in eating disorder recovery anyway. Um, but like, why would I, <laughs> if it's going to be hard? Um, and I think that's like where we also get providers misconceptions that like, you just don't want to do it because it's hard rather than because you can't, I need the dopamine to get over the hill. And if I'm, if I've already, if it's come and gone, I, I can't. So in that case, if we're talking about like a recovery task that I have to do for the day, like eating a meal or something, um, what can I add to it to make it, um, more appealing to me? AKA where, where's the dopamine? How do I follow it? Um, so I really, I like to come from like an additive stance. Um, what do I know stimulates me? What, and that's when I do, um, like a dopamine activity with my clients, um, which is, um, I come from this YouTube, uh, ADHD channel called how to, I think it's called how to ADHD. It's really popular and it's awesome. And she did this episode, um, about, like you have, it's kind of set up like a menu where you have like your entrees um, that are like things that give you life and like get you out of bed. And like, that is like your key dopamine source, like, um, like an activity, like I'm going to like go to the beach with my friends or something, but then you have like your add-ons and that's what I'm talking about here. Like, um, like having a fidget while I watch TV is going to make that TV show like way more tolerable to me or um, like when things get too boring, how do I make them interesting? Um, and so that's an appeal to like sensory often. Um, can I add, add something that's fun, like sounds or smells? Um, can I reward myself? Um, sometimes I talk to my clients about if there's a task they're dreading and they've been putting off this procrastination, we're great at that. Um, can you get yourself something not as the reward after the fact? Cause that's we're here and now, like we don't care about after the fact. Um, can you get yourself something new and exciting and shiny and novel to add to the task itself? Like if your goal is to clean out your car, can you like buy an air freshener in your favorite scent and then get really psyched about that? So you can smell it as you go. So like with food, um, can I like, have a podcast that I only reserve for my fate. Like it's my favorite one. And I am only going to listen to it when I'm preparing food or, um, like a, a thing that I only do when I grocery shop. Um, 
or, and then sensory tools. If I get overstimulated a lot, um, I'm going to wear sunglasses at the grocery store, right. To make it more tolerable. So it's like a give and take all the time. Can you share a little bit around, cause I'm looking at the stimulation as like, a, almost like a, like a line and it has like, you know, a spectrum of some, of some sort. Right. And thinking about it from a, for people who maybe don't have this language, can you describe a little bit around what do you mean by stimulating and like overstimulating and then understimulating at the same time and feeling overwhelmed and needing something to kind of boost it. And then other times when you need something to kind of calm it down, can you describe that a little bit for people who maybe don't know that language? Totally. Um, so overstimulation might feel like a sense of um, anxiety and panic and like feeling confused about where to start or frozen or, um, and it may be mental or physical in your environment like that. The cause of it um, is like the source of overstimulation. Maybe just there's too much going on um, uh, externally, or it may be like I'm having racing thoughts, right? Or like you may get overstimulated by something in your environment and then start having racing thoughts, but um, it it's going to feel different for everyone. Um, and some of us are better at masking than others. So you may not even know what's happening. People around you might not know what's happening. Um, uh, and you may like try really hard to keep it under wraps. Like I'm fine. Everything's fine. Right. But, um, I think a lot of classic ADHD symptoms, like, um, like not listening and forgetting and having trouble following directions and, um, what is perceived as like stubbornness or laziness or um, being inefficient or having poor self-control, those things are associated with overstimulation because we're freezing internally and we can't focus on, on like what's in front of us. There's just, um, that's like, that's when the task paralysis often pops in and we need things to like slow down so that we can do one thing at a time um, to get back into that ideal window. Um, and then under stimulation, kind of on the flip side is like um, often kind of synonymous with the word boredom, um, but not always like different people are understimulated by different things. And it may feel like time is like crawling by slowly and we may struggle the most when we're understimulated with, uh, with impatience and frustration and feeling on edge and um, like, um, like we aren't in the moment. Um, but people might see that as like immaturity or, you know, like just entertain yourself. Why it's being bored is not the end of the world, right? But it feels so intolerable to the ADHD brain. Um, and that's when we may exhibit like more impulsivity and poor judgment um, and restlessness in order to get our stimulation levels up. Um, so it really does work, like you said, like that spectrum, like you're either down or you're up and you're trying to go down or you're trying to go up. Um, and just automatically, like our brain has that mechanism. We don't have to necessarily put a lot of thought into it. Like, how do I do this right now? But but we might want to, because if our automatic instinct is to meet those needs in a, like a destructive way, we might kind of want to do a manual override where we use something like a dopamine to be like, no, like my, I, I notice my brain wants to go like 
drive my car a hundred miles an hour down my neighborhood street. But like, I have this list of things that I've already decided I was going to do next time this happened. No, I really like that. I think it is a really great visual to be able to see that. And I also think, honestly, I think anybody um, can kind of relate to this idea of feeling, um, trying to kind of initiate their tasks by things and having that internal conversation of, okay, how can I stimulate myself to want to do it? And it could also have nothing to do with ADHD, right? But then I understand that someone with ADHD, it's like almost like another hurdle to go into to start. Yeah, um, that starting that task. Whereas like, if you maybe don't have ADHD, you're having that same conversation, but getting up and doing it is a little bit more accessible to you, right? Like, you know, it just feels like it's like a little bit easier to do it. Yeah, That's um, why ADHDers have that, like some of us struggle with task initiation, some of us struggle with finishing a task and some with both, because like you maybe get that dopamine before and you're good. You don't need to start it or you're so overwhelmed by it that it's like, I'm never going to do this. Why would I start? Or you get the hit after like two seconds of it and you're like, you're good. You've, it's, you've lost your team. Like there's no reason to finish it. I could also see, and I know you've posted about this in, um, in your Instagram too, about how not only is it like, oh, my task initiation too, but I'm, and I'm thinking about the simulation and the, and as well as being a big influence too, but also I could see how imposter syndrome could, could really heavily influence this entire process for yourself. Um, whether it's keeping you back from doing something or, um, or having you go for it full time full throttle in different layers. And I, you mentioned specifically an area of an eating disorder that I feel like is not discussed very often, often, um, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder with Arfred, um, and ADHD and imposter syndrome. And I'd love for you to kind of like, I feel like we're leading in that direction in a cool way. And I'd love for you to kind of talk about that a little bit, but um, about how imposter syndrome can really play a role with ADHD and also in the eating disorder space. But before we dive into it heavy, I'd love for you to do like a little one-on-one on Arfred because it's an eating disorder um, that's not often as discussed in mainstream. So a lot of people don't know a lot about it. Um, wow. And I think it needs to get a lot more press, if you will. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, Um Arfit is something that I think gets missed. I mean, probably, I I see a lot of like discourse around eating disorders being missed and and fairly so. Like there's so many different reasons that, that somebody might not be identified, including a lot of just rampant fat phobia. Um, but with Arfit, I think people will often say, like it, it missing Arfid comes from like, um, that's your eating disorder talking or whatever. And ARFID is often like really a lot of preferences that are inherent in the brain, like, or it stems from there and then it, it spirals and then there are like um, negative impacts or outcomes related to that. So, sorry, too heavy, starting basic. <laughs> um, like, what is it? When I first saw that like three categories it was divided into that I wasn't, when I was first trained in ARFID, I was like, oh, it's just, people like only want to eat chicken nuggets. It was like such a basic understanding, 
but it made so much more sense. So those three categories are um, like a fear of aversive consequences. So that's where, you know, the choking, vomiting kinds of fears often based in like trauma that's happened in the past or somebody observed that happening. Um, uh, and then there's the sensory sensitivities, which is why I mentioned it being kind of like a really big preference thing um, that some foods, textures, tastes, um, smells, et cetera, may just feel really intolerable to a person or one in particular um, feels like really like safe and consistent. That's a really big thing um, that this, this food is something I, I can depend on and I know it's always going to be the same. Um, whereas the other ones vary too much. Um, and, and that comes into play with ADHD a lot because um, we have these like food hyperfixations uh, where we're really, really into something similar to how somebody might be really into like a movie um, and then lose interest once, once the food no longer gives you the dopamine rush anymore. Um, and then you drop it and you're like, I hate this thing, but now I don't have any safe foods anymore. Um, or in ARFID, I think we, there's a preference to call it preferred foods. Um, cause safe foods kind of has more of that, uh, the indication that you're afraid of the other foods and that's something you need to get over rather than to accommodate. Um, and then that last category is more of just like a lack of interest in eating, which is a huge ADHD thing because again, with hyper-focus um, and our, that laser focus, if I'm in the middle of doing something, food does not sound appealing to me. Like, why would I eat when I'm getting my dopamine from like a video game? I'm just going to play that for eight hours. And like, I, also out of sight, out of mind. So if I'm focused on this and the food's over there and my, I also paired with low interoceptive awareness, I'm, if my body's not telling me that, I need to eat, I'm not thinking about it. So it's not right here, right now. Um, and so accommodating that may be really, um, really, it's gonna be really individualized. Like some people may really benefit from like um, alarms and reminders from, from loved ones or like setting up uh, a system where the food is in front of them and um, like really appealing to that object um, impermanence and trying to make things visible. Um, and some people might really not like that might feel like a demand and, um, demand anxiety is something really common in neurodivergence. And so we might be like, get that, like, now I don't want to eat like, you know, that, that, um, that meme of like the penguin with its arms crossed being like, well, now I'm not gonna, that's what I always describe to people. Like, don't tell me to do the thing now. I'm not going to. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. I, I feel like sometimes I'll hear from clients of mine talking about how they feel like there's like this rebellious side within them. They're like, oh, it's like there's like this teenager angsty kind of feeling that's like, um, well, now you've said it. Now I definitely can't do it. And I do know that even um, the, I feel like that plays such a big role in it too. And I, I like that you really brought that up. I also think too, one of the things that I, I think would be interesting for you to discuss is like, how long does it take for people to typically one, one even hear about this diagnosis to one, right? I think um, to identify with it and then how do you get the resources and confidence in order to do something about it? Because I do think, especially for 
you know, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like poked fun at in some ways. And I think a lot of times it goes undiagnosed because one, people don't know about it. They don't have the language for it and they've never heard about it. But then, you know, it's like, it's made kind of of light and like, oh, they're just a really selective picky, quote unquote, picky eater. And this is how they eat or they eat like a child and that's it. And not realizing, or they are, um, so hyper-focused on the thing that they're doing that they can't break away and create a system that helps them eat routinely and consistently throughout the day. And I think a lot of times it's kind of blown off um, and not given the focus that it needs in order to be able to support it. And I think that that's like a real problem because then it makes it feel like um, that you're just kind of stuck you know, um, in this place. And so how do you support people with one identifying with this and being able to distinguish like, oh, this might be me. I think like you're spot on with like, it takes a a long time for a lot of people to identify this. And I think part of that is because it's like lumped together with other eating disorders because it's like, um, you know, they originate from the same place, like, you know, typically, um, in, in treatment spaces, like binge eating disorder and anorexia and bulimia, they're all being treated together in the same space because the underlying issues tend to kind of be, um, you know, like control and, um, um, uh, power and things like that. And, um, there's such a wide array, don't get me wrong of underlying issues, but, like group therapy and just talking about it and getting, putting the eating disorder out of a job in those diagnoses make a lot of sense. Um, ARFID is a really practical eating disorder in that it's getting, it's, it's not just getting needs met uh, on a psychological level, but like, okay, if my, if my body and my brain can't tolerate this food or aren't interested in food, then I'm going to accommodate it this other way. I'm going to, only eat this food or I'm going to like do the bare minimum to get by to survive because I don't want to. Um, and so we, we have to have a different treatment approach to it. Then we can't lump them together. And when we do, we get things like, um, uh, like exposure as the only intervention that's available. So just keep, keep doing the thing you haven't been doing, and then it'll become a routine and you'll become desensitized to it, uh, to the thing that you can't tolerate. And then, and then you won't do that thing anymore. And it's just not that simple. Um, but I, I think our, very commonly when people have gone to treatment many, many times and they're like, why isn't it working? Um, it's because like, yeah, they had another eating disorder, but there were also ARFID traits there and those were never addressed or accommodated. They were just sort of like, no, just kind of get over it. Like, just, just don't do that. Or like, we'll give you structure in this contained space. And then you just, just go ahead and maintain that when you have all these other dopamine sources outside of treatment. (laughs) Yeah, but that's also so dangerous too, right? Because then you're taking away consent and autonomy Mm -hmm. and like all of the other pieces that can play a huge role in long-term recovery outcomes as well. And I feel like 
um, that also pulls a thread, right? And you talk about that too, and like a treatment center voice in your in your Instagram as well, which I I found to be really interesting. But I don't want to go there yet. But I I get what you're saying. <laughs> and I think it's like really really interesting. I think also too. Um, I think it's hard also when you do feel like, well, I do have body image pieces that are coming up as well. Mm -hmm. So then a lot of times I think in treatment, sometimes that will trump the, the Arfred, um, diagnosis or even like kind of going down that road and supporting it in that way because there's in some cases uh immediate medical necessity for Mm -hmm. rectifying that piece too yeah and so I think that sometimes that can then can lead down that road but I, I get what you mean by um and I could see how someone who's gone through various treatments throughout their lives for eating disorder and still not quite getting over, go, getting to the support or getting to the place of having systems and recovery a little bit more streamlined with their lives, how Arfred could also like be like, this might be the thing that had been missing this whole time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and being able to support them and being able to one, acknowledge it. I mean, how great would it be if someone just said, hey, this is part of this too. You have a propensity to not prefer eating. <laughs> you know, like yeah. you easily forget to eat or don't think about it or your body isn't telling you that it's hungry and we're telling you to listen to your body. And that <laughs> feels, inc- that's like, okay, well, I'm listening to my body. My body doesn't tell me to eat. So like I'm recovered, like great you know and maybe I've done all this deep work in therapy and it's like why is this still like this like I'm supposed to have I've identified the underlying issues I've like patched things up with my mom and I've like all these things that were contributing to my eating disorder why is this still here and not to say that even if ARPA isn't present it's going to be all that simple right like habits die hard but also like if you weren't seeing the ARFID then none of like, I really like how you put it, a propensity to not want to eat, right? Like, so I'm going to, and that's, that's why there's kind of like a newer push to even view ARFID as um, a, a form of neurodivergence itself, that like, this is just how I am. And um, maybe like pursuing this, like, often talked about version of full recovery where I'm eating normal would be me masking. And if I'm masking, I'm going to burn out and it's going to hurt me more long-term. Like what if instead of challenging these things that are inherent in me, I just accommodated them. And I, I mean, in a, a way that is medically like life-saving, you know, like I don't maybe what if I don't have to eat this food that, that I don't want to eat? (laughs) What if I can like, eternally have reminders set up um, and like create cues for myself or, um, you know, door dash things instead of cook, like all of these, what if all these things aren't just beginning of recovery things They're for the rest of my life and that's okay. And I can live a perfectly happy, fulfilling life in that way without having to change something that is inherent to who I am. Oh, Yes, <laughs> I I actually fully support the movement of that because I, I really do get it. I think a lot of times 
with clients of mine, one of the, especially if they're on a stimulant medication, right? Like that makes it even harder. And so sometimes some clients of mine, especially if they have an eating disorder, they'll um, sometimes stimulant medications or like Adderall isn't even offered to them um, because of the way that it can then impact their, their appetite and kind of move them away from having that in place. But if you were to then say like, okay, you're going to, this is going to help you with the pieces of the ADHD so that you can create the systems and create the organization and order. And if you have someone that you're working with who can help you set the alarms, who can help you set up your pantry in a way that's easier for you to access your foods and help you set up all the different pieces in order for you to to work more streamlined with this and being able to accommodate and also validate that this is your experience. Um, validate that you don't really think about eating when you first wake up in the morning, you don't wake up hungry or you don't think about, um, you know, like you, you don't want to eat potatoes. Like, and, and that's like not that's, just like the quote unquote, um, the eating disorder talking. Yeah. Like sometimes you literally just your brain. Sometimes you just don't like potatoes. Like, you know, and I think that's also okay too. Like it's okay to not like certain foods and you don't have to eventually force yourself or pretend to like them in order to recover. Like, um, I think that's something as well that I think, I think everybody can kind of take away from that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a challenged food that you have to get past always. Yeah, I mean, so often though, my clients come to me saying, I want to, I want to be able to eat this food. Like I, this is, or I want to be able to expand my, my palate or whatever. And I mean, first of all, I'm like, well, then you let's work with a dietitian too. Cause that <laughs> it's so interesting. The things that, um, people think are, are psychological in nature that, um, like they, they need support dietitian support with too, that. They're kind of just like, fix me, like make, make my brain want this thing, you know? Um, but uh, aside from that, like my, I think my work in when somebody says that is let's, let's like break down the mask and explore where that's coming from. And like, sometimes they genuinely are like, I think that based on my life circumstances and the limited amount of foods that I feel able to eat right now, I would be happier and I would be happier if I could be more flexible. It's not coming from outside pressure. It's not coming from my desire to fit in or belong um, or to be normal, whatever that means. But like, it's like, I, I genuinely want this. And if that's the conclusion we come to after doing the work of like really digging into where this desire originated um, and it's not this internalized ableism, then like, I'm all about client autonomy. Let's do it. I'm not going to judge somebody for wanting to make that difference. But I find that often when people are honest with themselves, that there is something there, but also masks are important. You know, we, we kind of like demonize masking as like being fake, but that's not what, what it is. Often we mask for safety. And if somebody is being bullied or is feeling like despair because of the way people are are talking about, or like you said, kind of in this mocking way, talking about how they eat or, um, you know, there's so many implications of ARFID um, socially, then maybe if this is a safety issue, 
um, in the way that like, you know, sometimes people who struggle with like social cues or something want to learn to mask, it comes down to safety and ultimately sure being able to unmask would be the greatest goal of all, but we also need to be able to make that choice and to have the resources to make that choice if safety is at risk. So that's why I support that, that goal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also too, like, um, I think I saw on your Instagram and I, I thought, oh yeah, sorry, we're on the same page. Cause sometimes you go to a dietitian or nutritionist like me and you work with us too, and you refer And other times I'll take a client of mine and say, you know what, I think you actually need the occupational therapist. Mm -hmm. That's really what we need. You know, Uh, I wish like an occupational therapist that works with an adult is like a diamond in a rough. And I, and I hope that as there's more awareness around ADHD and more people are identifying with it, maybe we'll see a growth in that in that profession as well. Mm -hmm. But I do think that that's such a big piece of supporting people with that goal. Like if they do want to expand their palate, um, sometimes it's not a matter of like, oh, well, here's a different preparation. Sometimes it is, but other times it's what can we do from an occupational standpoint to help you with your palate, to help you feel more comfortable with that texture in your mouth Mm -hmm. and what comes up for you. Um, and things of that, like, and thinking about it from that way. Sure. And then you can do it, you can't do it. And then we can talk about like the grief and acceptance of that. And rather than trying to push you beyond your limits that are going to be like, are going to create like a sensory trauma because that's real and is often minimized as well. Like just push through it is how we like desensitization in that realm expands to other areas of life too. Like If we're teaching somebody to just push through pain and intolerance with food, they're going to do that in like relationships and become more vulnerable to abuse. Right. So um, this is not, or even people may have that goal because they've been pushed or told to just push through it in other areas of their life before. So like, we have to be really delicate in in how we approach that goal and like helping people to know their limits. Because again, with interoceptive um, cues, not always online, um, somebody might not know I can't do this, but they might be experiencing overstimulation or extreme distress and like not be able to connect the two. And that might be where our work is too. Absolutely. I think you are leading perfectly to, you had a post that said, what's good for me. And Mm -hmm. I really love how you broke this down and I think the low interoceptive awareness piece plays a big role and also too how do you have something like trust your body's wisdom and put yourself first when we're constantly being told to push outside of our comfort zone in order to grow like a perfect example is what you just said um about when it comes to integrating new foods into your into your diet right if you are being told like oh well you better like like in order to recover and to move past this you need to or to fit in you have to like mashed potatoes i don't know why i'm stuck on potatoes (laughs) this is the example so there's so many different textures and ways to prepare them and some people some and not others yeah yeah exactly so like you have to then like this preparation or you have to like this food Mm -hmm. i think also too like it lends itself to a much larger conversation and I really like how you mentioned about being safe and being more susceptible 
people to different types of abuse. If you are pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone and thinking that it's, if you're being told throughout various points in your life that this is what it means to grow, you might be more susceptible to not doing, like to being um, put in positions where this happens to you. But then when you're in recovery or you're working with someone or you're reading like the book on intuitive eating, and they're telling you to listen to your body's internal cues and put yourself first and trust your body's wisdom. When it comes to eating times and being consistent with eating and knowing what it means to feel satisfied and what it means to be like hunger, even when you're thinking about the hunger and fullness scale, mm-hmm. this doesn't feel accessible. Mm-hmm. And so it, how is it beneficial? It's not, right? right. So we have to meet everybody where they are and help support them. So if you could talk about um, that whole piece of like telling someone to push outside their comfort zone in order to grow as being kind of a problem, I'd love for you to talk about that more. Yeah, I mean, I think doing that inherently pathologizes something that is natural to a person and that hurts. And it's often like just compounding messages that have been received throughout life anyway, like, you're lazy and you just need to try harder. I, I always go back to that one because I feel like that's the top like thing that that ADHDers get told by people who don't understand them early in life and then internalize and believe about themselves and it spirals. But um, I digress. I, I think um, you just need to push is, is it comes from a really narrow model of recovery because what are you pushing toward your that that like definition that may not fit for you but because um and this is where it gets like kind of like into the politics of eating disorder treatment and stuff too uh because it's you know it's managed care setting these guidelines and this is what we want this person's recovery to look like, or we're not going to cover treatment and that sort of thing. And it's really aggravating because what if I don't want that? (laughs) And then also so much of recovery for my clients, my, my ADHDers um, tends to be being able to answer that question. What do I want? Um, Honestly, and sometimes for the first time ever, because they've never been asked, they've only been told this is what you should want. And um, that's, it's, it can be really hard to get in touch with that and requires breaking down the mask um, and why we learn to mask in these ways and, and who are we trying to please and, and who are we trying to avoid displeasing. And that lends itself to the conversation about safety as well. The importance of determining what should be challenged and what should be accommodated can't be understated. Like there's, there's so many different ways that treatment can do that, but also that we can do that for ourselves. Like with that treatment center voice that you talked about before, the like really wanting to um, figure out what is, what is okay. What that I used to think was a problem that maybe isn't actually a problem or that big of a problem or like doesn't need to be the focus of what I'm trying to change right now can be so liberating. Like, um, I used to see people like told, like, stop, stop moving. Like you're trying to burn calories. And and they would be like, I'm, I'm literally like 
I mean, they didn't have necessarily have the language for this, but like, I'm trying to get my vestibular input needs met. And, and like, now I wasn't before, but now I'm associating movement with calories. So that's kind of making the problem worse, but like self-determination would be like, okay, like if malnourishment is an issue here, how else can I get the vestibular need met? Maybe I'm going to throw a ball up against the wall or like, you know, hang upside down or something on the couch and instead of running or like these substitutions um, are like really like as long as they're done collaboratively can be so such a game changer. Whereas before we were following this one prescribed version of recovery. I think one of the things that comes to mind is just acceptance and being able to look at recovery in a broader way. And this goes for the practitioners who are helping the people with recovery, like, <laughs> you know, not necessarily for the people who are in it. I think the people who are in it need to advocate and get this education for them. Um, but the people too, who are facilitating, uh, not everyone presents the same way. And I think sometimes being able to, I can't, understand why meeting individuals where they are and their unique needs is not at the center for so much of all of this because if it were <laughs> um these things would already be happening and for whatever reason they're not and I think a lot of that comes down to there's not a lot of ongoing larger discussions about the intersection of eating disorders and in neurodivergence, right? And, and how a lot of the things that we have typically done in the medical setting for recovery for an eating disorder just isn't accessible for individuals with ADHD in the same way or at all. And I think it's really wonderful that you're doing this type of really important work and that you um, are supporting individuals with trying to figure out um, how they can meet themselves where they are and create their own goals and still at the same time work on their recovery in a way that's most effective for them. And I think that that's so important because it's not all one size fits all. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> we haven't even gotten into like weight stigma in, in treatment either. So like, there's like all kinds of layers to this, but if, if I could like write a, well, and I you probably will eventually write a book on this, but like, it's, I feel like it's not one size fits all. It's like the key takeaway that I, that I want to give fellow providers. And like, I feel like we know that every, like, everyone's like, yeah, of course, individualized care. Right. But like, actually individualized not just care to get to one point but like individualized points that you're trying to get to as well yeah yeah I think sometimes too it, it can be harder when you're working with minors too of like trying to figure out um you know all, all the different pieces it can be really really complicated and a lot of layers <laughs> so yeah, ethical considerations and communication and different family systems and what resources are available like there's so many moving parts and it's it's not easy and um I definitely don't intend to like um you know shame fellow providers who aren't coming from this this lens yet but I also like want to invite people to look at the lens they're using right now and um and to 
like once once you put the neurodiversity affirming lens on you like the next the next action step is advocacy and like helping other people who are working with this person whether it's parents or providers or just people in the person's life who are doing harm to see how to do something differently is as we wrap up is there anything that you would like for anyone who's listening to this who relates to this but not as a practitioner as a person going through it that you want them to hear I think primarily like it's such a it's such a basic like platitude but as I always say to to clients like sometimes cheesy things are true (laughs) you are not broken like there's never been like just because something is inherent in you or something is more inherently more difficult because of the way you are doesn't mean you're broken oftentimes the the world is just not set up for you it's not designed to serve you it's designed to serve a dominant neurotype and and it's it sucks that you have to adjust like it's not fair and that needs to be validated and 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 I and something I wish was said to me when when I was first diagnosed was like this is this shouldn't be this way you shouldn't have to work as hard as you do to accommodate yourself and the support exists in doing so amazing well thank you so much Cece for coming on um is there anything that you want to share with us I mean we're going to share in the show notes like all the places to find you and all the different things, but is there anything specifically that you want to share today for the listeners for like where to find you or anything you have coming up or anything like that? Um, I do. I have a monthly um, ADHD and autism adult eating disorder support group that is getting kind of small and I would love for more participants. It's a, it's a peer led support group. So it's available to people anywhere, um, any time zone. Um, and it's the, the last Tuesday of the month. So um, yeah, we would love more participants coming from like help at every size and a radical mental health lens. And we often talk about, um, I mean, we talk about everything under the sun, but, um, like kind of the sharing of ideas for self-accommodation. So, um, I love that. Yeah. We'll definitely have to share that in here and anyone who's listening show up. That'd be amazing. I really yeah. love that. Yeah. Awesome. Anything else that you want to share before we wrap up or is that the main thing? That's the main thing. Well, thank you so much, Stacey, for coming on. I really appreciate your time and energy and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. For having me. Yeah, this was fun. (laughs) Hey friends, it's Dana. And thanks for listening to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your family and friends. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you can, we would absolutely love it if you left a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps spread the word so more people can find the show and learn how to break out of diet culture, the body image spiral, and find a more peaceful relationship with food in their bodies with wholehearted eating. If you're interested in learning more about how you can work with me or Christina for one-on-one nutrition counseling or checking out our self-paced courses, head over to wholeheartedeating.com. And we'll see you again here next week.